following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. So, what do you guys fight about? What do you guys battle over? What do couples fight over these days? What's your battle? I heard money. Somebody just said money. Here's a list for you. Uh, you can react or groan or whatever if it fits you. What, where you want to eat. Toothpaste, tube usage. Checking phones at dinner. Leaving clutter around the house. Uh, where you spend the holidays. Leaving hairs on the drain. The right way to drive. Loading the dishwasher. Leaving closet and cabinet doors open. Watching TV without the other. Toilet paper roll put on incorrectly. Temperature controls in the house. Breathing too loud at night, snoring in your sleep. Ask... We're having a revival. Uh, Asking, do I look fat? (laughs) Whose family is more dysfunctional? (laughs) Leaving the bathtub set to shower. Um, Touching the thermostat, not asking for directions. We fight over the dumbest things. Dumbest things. Now, sometimes serious things, communication, money, intimacy, whatever. I was taught... Very early, even before I was married, it's better to argue than to be silent. Because when you're at least wrestling over it, you're expressing love to one another and not ignoring each other. But we do fight over the dumbest things. But there is one thing that the Lord does want us to fight over, and that's the truth of the gospel. He does. It's so important that if you get it wrong, you're bound for hell. If you get it right, you can enjoy the bliss of heaven. If you get it wrong, you're enslaved to sin and deceived by error. If you get it right, you're freed by grace and guided by truth. No matter how difficult your life is this morning, this is a war that God wants you and calls you to fight in Galatians chapter 1. If you're not there already, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1 as we continue in our verse-by-verse study of this incredible book Verses 6 through 9, we're going to look at today as one of the edgiest and sharpest passages in the entire Bible. It's pretty edgy. In fact, of this great letter, God is telling us how to preserve the true gospel, how to clarify what's an accurate justification, and to safeguard the good news. The warning here is to not mess with the gospel, not mess with it. Galatians 1, 6-9, he's drawing a clear line in the sand, no question. Paul taught this gospel during his first missionary journey to churches in the Galatia province, and he taught them that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But some teachers who came out of the Jewish faith, called Judaizers, began to accuse Paul of preaching an easy gospel. 
Paul just is making it easy for you because he's a man pleaser, right? He's just trying to draw a clock crowd and make everybody happy. So he says, look, it, it costs you nothing. It's all by grace. And they're making these accusations and some of the Galatians are buying into this. In fact, the Judaizers taught that coming to Christ and pleasing Christ involved keeping the Jewish ceremonies and the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs in order to be truly saved. That sounded a little bit more like good religion. You know, it's going to cost you a little bit more. It's going to be a little bit harder. So Paul lovingly warns his readers they have to fight against this false gospel and fight for the true gospel, to stand firm on it. And friends, maybe you're weary of warring. You've got too many battles in your life, too much spiritual warfare, too many battles with marriage and kids and circumstances and job. But understand, if you don't fight this battle, it will destroy the hope of salvation for you and all you love. This is something you must stand firm on. Get it right. This battle has been going on in the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. This is the very first epistle of Paul in the New Testament, and this is the battle that he's fighting right out the gate. As far as in the foundations of Christianity, this is the hill that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli said, I'm willing to die for this. This is it. But understand... Not only must this gospel be pure, protected, and proclaimed, the question that really faces us this morning is, can you distinguish between the true gospel and the false gospels in our day? Distinguish, discernment. As we go through Galatians, you're going to get a clearer and clearer view, and we're going to end up talking about some of the contemporary attacks down the road in weeks to come that are actually against the gospel that are making its inroads in the church, destroying churches today, the social justice movement, etc. But I know that distinguishing a discernment is not an easy thing. I have a very difficult time distinguishing the difference between Mr. Pibb and Dr. Pepper. Anybody with me on this? I think it's different companies, but I just, you know, I don't get it. I prefer one over the other, but I don't get it. But the gospel is pretty plain, it's pretty specific, it's pretty clear, so hopefully in these early chapters we're going to get a pretty clear view of the basics and the differences between Christianity and every other faith and what we need to preserve, and then we'll begin to compare that to some of the attacks that come against us. But today there are all kinds of weird little mini-gospels. There's like the mini-gospel of material prosperity, which teaches that Jesus is the way to financial gain. There's the gospel of family values, which teaches that Jesus is the way to a happy home. There's the gospel of self, which teaches that Jesus is the way to personal fulfillment. There's the gospel of the Republican Party, which teaches that Jesus is the way to get the right people elected. There's the gospel of social justice, which teaches that coming to Jesus must first include a commitment to hate abortion and racism and poverty in every social context. There is a gospel of religious tradition which teaches that Jesus is the way to respectability there's the gospel of morality which teaches that Jesus is the way to be a good person there's the gospel of religious rules that teaches that Jesus wants you to live good in order to be saved what makes these other gospels so dangerous 
is that the things that they offer are all beneficial, right? I mean, it's really good to be well-behaved and prosperous and to, and to hate preju- prejudice and, and to be moral and, and religious and all those kind of things. And yet, as good as those things are, they are not the true good news of Jesus Christ. They are not the gospel that is eternal. They're not the gospel that is heavenly. They're not the gospel that brings salvation. See, the church's greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside the church, but it's the counterfeit gospel inside the church. That's the dangerous thing. And the Judaizers, sadly, did not walk around Lystra wearing t-shirts that said, hug me, I'm a false teacher. Okay? It's not obvious. They, what made them so dangerous is they knew Christian talk. They were super popular. They used all the right terms. They talked about how to get saved. They told people to trust in Christ. They represented a gospel, but they didn't have the gospel. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian knows Christ. And not everything called the gospel is the gospel. It's not the mere words that save. It's the realities of the one true gospel that save. Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection as a substitute for sinners. God saves sinners. Interesting. That's why the gospel must be pure. It must be protected. And it must be proclaimed. And in this intense intro... Paul proclaims the incredible true gospel in verses 1 through 5, and then now in verses 6 through 9, he moves from the awesome to the awful, just like that. Perhaps without even, you know, re-dipping his pen as he's writing this, he turned from glorifying the Father for his marvelous grace in verses 3 through 5 to now chastising the Galatians for their amazing apostasy in verses 6 through 9. I mean, just that quick, he changes tone. This is what caused Paul to, point number one, your outline, if you're tracking with me, the wonder over the defection from the gospel. Wonder over the, the defection from the gospel. Think back to that moment when someone close to you betrayed you or betrayed Christ. Think about that. Do you have that in your life? I was thinking about this personally. I have many examples. The one that I'll share with you is uh, I've been involved in the discipleship of hundreds of men in my lifetime. It's been one of my greatest joys, and I've been blown away by how God uses them and, and uses these men for his glory in so many different contexts. But even with those hundreds of guys, there's been a handful, just a small, small amount, small percentage of those same men that were invested into that were later those who denied the faith or became opponents of Christ. And one of the reasons why we experience defections is so that we will know what it's like for Christ when he betrayed and was betrayed by, excuse me, by Judas. If you want to become like Christ, and I think that all of you who know Christ do, that means you will suffer like Christ, and that also means that you will experience rejection, defection, and betrayal like Christ, right? So that's going to be a part of your life. It's going to be one of the things that will test your faith in a very deep way. But intentionally, I'm having you recall those moments in your own life that will help you understand why Paul writes with such such passion in verse 6. 
7, 8, and 9. If you can remember that betrayal, then you'll know why he responds. Are you ready? That's why. So look what he says in verse 6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Verse 6, I am amazed, I'm utterly astonished that anybody would do what you Galatians are doing. This is jaw-dropping to Paul, and it's ongoing. He found himself in a continual state of dumbfounded shock. I mean, he's in stunned wonder. Uh, The Greek word amazed there is that readers are going to have no doubt that he's upset, that he's concerned, that he's passionate here. It is shocking to Paul, and honestly, shocking to pastors today, elders today, ministry leaders today, that so many then and today are so gullible and lacking discernment that they'd embrace these spiritual charlatans and go off the track doctrinally in this realm. Why is Paul so disturbed? Well, he says in 2 Corinthians 11.4, they're preaching another Jesus. They're preaching a different gospel. They turned away from salvation, and they rejected the true Christ, which explains the intensity of Paul's shock here. What did he say? Look, he says, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so what? Quickly. The Greek word quickly means, write it down, easily and rapidly. So the Galatians are easy. They're easy for for these false teachers, and this shocks Paul. Uh, And again, it shocks him in a way that maybe you don't get. If Paul actually wrote Galatians sometimes during his, his stay here in Antioch in Acts chapter 14 verse 28 after the first missionary journey, that really if the timing is accurate here, it may have only taken a matter of weeks before the Judaizers made their way in and they began to buy into the heresy. I mean, he had just been there and now they're moving away. They, they made their way into Cyprus, Perga, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, modern-day Turkey here, all in the Galatian region. Paul had poured his life into these people. Paul had given his life to them. He planted these churches, and yet quickly and easily they fall victim to those perverters of the gospel, resulting in Paul being continually amazed, ongoingly, that's the tense here, shocked. Uh, reoccurrently bewildered. Paul just can't get over it. I mean, he writes this down. When he's done, he's still bewildered. He's still shocked by this. Why? Verse 6 tells you they were deserting Christ. You see it? Verse 6 says, so quickly deserting him. Deserting him. Isn't there, there's nothing more traitorous than having a fellow soldier go to the other side, right? And fight against you. And that's what he's talking about here. This is what the Galatians were doing. The, the verb deserting is actually a military desertion. It's, it's punishable by death. Uh, the word deserting means to change places, to transfer. And he's telling you, you're transferring your allegiances. Basically what he's telling them, you were serving Christ and now you're serving Satan. Just like that. So it's driving them crazy. And the form of the verb here is basically indicate the Galatian believers are voluntarily deserting grace and embracing legalism taught by these false teachers. Don't miss this. This is showing you God's heart toward the truth and toward the gospel. It's not just Paul here. This is God's heart. You know, let me make this just in your mind, and maybe you're not facing this, but someday you might. 
When a church attender, somebody that you love, you're pouring your heart into, that you have a friendship with, a so-called Christian, they decide, I'm going to become a Catholic, or I'm going to become a Mormon, or I'm going to become a Muslim. That is devastating. They're not trading religions, they're moving from Christ to Satan. They're moving from loyalty and salvation to eternal damnation. Just in that move. It's a big thing. It should bother you. Uh, Now, understand, even joining certain churches and joining certain denominations can be just as disastrous. Can I hear an amen to that? Now, make sure you're clear. Our church... It's, a, it's not a perfect church, but we, we, we try to uphold good doctrine. And there are other churches in our area that are fantastic. There are at least seven that we know for sure that are fantastic. And we tell everybody at our next steps lunch, everybody, we tell them, if you don't come to our church and you don't like our church, that's fine. Let us help you get to one of those seven. Let's, let's help you get to other. There are good churches here, but there's also some really bad churches here. Yeah? And when people determine to go there that you know and love, you need to fight for their soul. Not about the church, but about what they're lining themselves up with, what they're embracing, what they're believing by doing so. Do you follow what I'm saying? Again, I'm trying to be really balanced here because they're not trading churches, they're deserting Christ in some contexts. Not every context, but in some contexts. And when the Galatians turn their back on Paul's authentic gospel message, they're walking away from Christ himself. This is a huge mistake. You say, why? Look at verse 6. They're betraying God. This is God in the flesh, the God who came to save sinners, the only way of salvation, the only one who can make you possibly be right with God, transformed, forgiven, go to heaven. They're betraying him. Now, do we have any betrayers in this room? Listen. In a practical way, through a moment of doubt, neglect, lack of faith, battles with sin in my head, that kind of thing, I've deserted Christ. Anybody else with me? But I'm telling you, when pressed, there is no way I'm walking away from my Lord. He's given me everything. No way. And I will never, ever alter, change or adjust the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ever! Understand, don't betray the Christ who, verse 6, calls you. See that verse 6? Who calls you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. For the genuine saints in Galatia, Christ is the one who called you by his grace in order to give you his blood-bought salvation look what he says verse 6 who called you and called you is literally write it down who called you once and for all it's permanent this is what the new testament letters and the doctrine of calling refers to the effectual call to salvation now you all get this i think you do that you were dead in your sins and you know what dead means anybody with me anybody know what dead means it means you're dead all right? Your spirit body, you're dead. You, you, there, you can't respond. You were blind in your faith. And yes, in the Greek, it means you can't see. You were helpless. You were hopeless. You're unable to break out of your sinful, fallen, depraved nature. But God, but God, out of a motive of love, 
Uh, he chose you in eternity past, and then at some point in your life, and this is what we hear when people share their testimonies, he called you. Your calling is not something in eternity past. That's your chosen. But sometime in your life, God interrupted your life, awakened you, and drew you to himself. And we could get a lot of time describing that for you, but the drawing is is actually described as, in the New Testament, against your will. It's like dragging you to himself. That he's talking about your nature being basically violated. That's how much he loves you. That's what it took for him to do so. He called you. He opened your eyes of the spiritually blind. He awoke the dead person to be alive so you could see your need of salvation and turn to Christ in faith. And that's described all throughout the New Testament. Take a look at these verses there in your outline. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning, way long ago, for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth, and it was for this He called you in time through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1.8 Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved you and called you with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and His own what? Oh, come on, say it like you mean it. His what? Grace which he has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. First uh, Peter 1.15, be uh, like the Holy One who called you, be holy also in all your behavior. No one can resist this call. It is an incredible act of sovereign grace and mercy. God loves you so much, he awakens you who are a rebel, shaking your fist in God's face, and he resurrects this dead sinful heart and calls you to salvation. And he's saying, don't, don't in any way appear to be walking away from the one who called you. And he called you, what's God's motive? Verse 6, by the grace of God. Who called you by the grace of Christ. Grace is, of course, God's free and sovereign act of mercy in granting salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, totally apart from any human work or any human merit. Are you getting it? Grace means you did nothing to gain salvation. One more time. It means you did what? Nothing. God did it all. That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of the true gospel. The basic truth behind this epistle is that Paul's gospel is a gospel of free grace. And Paul believed with all his heart that nothing a person can do will ever earn the love of God. And therefore, all you can do is throw yourselves on God's mercy and an act of faith. All a person can do is to take with awestruck wonder what God offers. Listen, the important truth is not what you do and what you can do for your, yourself. It's what Christ did for you. And what he has done for you. When it's grace, it means I totally depend on God to meet my needs and save me. If it's through the law, I'm going to try to handle matters myself. I'm going to try to earn it. I'm going to try to be a good boy in my own strength. Paul tells his readers, though, when they add works or laws or ceremonies and acts of worship to grace, it destroys grace. It destroys it. It's no longer Paul's gospel. It's no longer the true gospel of grace. But at the end of verse 6, he says it is for a, look at, at the end of verse 6, for a different gospel. 
It's a different gospel. The Galatians were deserting the gospel of grace for a different gospel. And Paul asserts it wasn't simply another legitimate version of the truth. It's a perversion of it. That word different is actually also translated in the New Testament, another. And the Greek is very specific. Sometimes there's another of a similar kind. This word is another of a different kind. It's not the same. He's telling you it's a different, it's not the gospel, another of a different kind. The Galatians were actually accepting the Judaizers' brand of gospel as a legitimate choice, but it was nothing of the kind. By adding the works of the law to the gospel of grace, the Judaizers had changed the very DNA of the gospel. This is happening, by the way. You say, Chris, I just don't feel burdened over this. I get it. I understand it. Listen, this is eroding churches as we speak. It's, it's destroying churches as we speak. You need to be clear on this. By adding the works of the law, they're changing the DNA. By adding social justice to the requirement of the gospel, you are changing the DNA of the gospel. Paul says their teaching was a different from the true gospel as night and day, as fire from water, as death from life. You destroy grace when you mix it with anything or you add anything to it. You destroy it. It's no longer grace. Now, I don't know if you men would admit this. Has any men here tried to bake something? Anybody tried to bake? Okay. So I don't know. I, it's two years ago now. This is like pre-diet. I, I've got, I, I, went, I went to Dismal Land, uh, the Tragic Kingdom, and we ate at a restaurant, and they had carrot cake there, and I ate that carrot cake, and I thought, I have got to have this carrot cake every day. Okay? <laughs> Anybody with me? It was unbelievable. So I thought, I am going to learn how to bake a carrot cake. So I go online. I think I'm being trendy and going online, and I find a recipe that says, this is Disney's recipe for carrot cake. This is the Disney carrot cake. And I'm like, <laughs> So I'm making this thing up, and the recipe seems funky to me, and I'm telling you, it was way off. It was flat. It was awful. I, it's the beginning and the end of my baking career. It was just, goo I, we threw it away. You couldn't eat it. It was terrible. The, the recipe was, because the mixture was not right. It was, it was defiled with the wrong product, right? The wrong addition. Listen, the gospel of grace doesn't bake when you add any work to it. Doesn't bake. It's not going to work. It's going to be flat. It's going to be, you got to throw it away. It's not going to save anybody. And the Judaizers, their perversion of the true gospel was adding the requirements and the routines of Old Testament Israel as a prerequisite to salvation. They taught for a person to be right with God, they had to be circumcised. And then they had to have Jewish, Jewish regulations. And they, there's nothing, it's, they're just adding to this, God, this grace. And they taught to be a Christian, you had to become a Jewish proselyte first. So they attacked Paul because when you attack the messenger, you can then attack the message, and they're going after his apostleship, and they're going after his teaching in multiple ways, and you're going to find next week that they're saying, you're a man pleaser, Paul. You're trying to just make it easy. You know, it's all free. It's all grace, and you don't have to work for it. It's, it's just given by God, and yada, 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 and they're thinking, you're, you're just a man pleaser. Well, Paul lived and taught the opposite saying anything added to salvation through faith alone, in Christ alone, and grace alone, distorts the true gospel. Number two in your outline, seek wisdom over the distortion of the gospel. Seek wisdom. 
Look at verse 7. He says, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The, the Judaizer gospel, verse 7, is really not another. It, it's no gospel. It's not good news. It's a yoke of bondage to the law, the obliteration of grace. There is but one gospel, and that's of grace, not works. And this matters because any change of the gospel means it is no gospel at all. Why is that? Why is any change of the gospel, however Saul, make it null and void? Because Paul says Christians were, verse 6, called by the grace of God. God called us. We didn't call him. God accepted us despite our lack of merit, our good works, our lifestyle, our lack of character. That's the order of the gospel. Please, get this straight. Tune in here. God accepts us, and then we follow him. That's the gospel. All right? The other religious systems have it the other way around. Reverse. And you're going to see Paul talk about the reverse here. They teach, we must give God something, and only then does he accept us. So the real gospel is, God accepts us, then we follow him. They reversed it, saying, we got to give all this stuff to God, then he will accept us. Are you getting it? Every religion in the world, you've heard me say this multiple times, is trying to work their way to God. I'll do this, I'll do this, do that, I'll live this way, I'll give this much, I'll light these candles, I'll do these sacraments, or whatever. Only Christianity, only the gospel of grace says God did all the work on your behalf. All of it. Every last thing. To bring you into his family. These false authorities taught the gullible that following Jewish customs like holy days, ceremonial cleansings, Sabbath observances was all necessary for salvation. And in doing so, what they were doing was, verse 7, they were disturbing, now listen, true Christians, they were disturbing the almost Christian. You know what that is? The person who is make, you know, being drawn, but they're not quite there yet. Okay, the almost Christian. And they were gaining acceptance from the tares in the church. Now, don't forget, listen very carefully. A genuine Christian cannot lose their salvation. Can I hear an amen to that? That's true. Once you're in Christ, because he's the one that did it, he ain't going to lose you. You're stuck. You're, you're, a genuine Christian is not going to become a heretic. That, but understand, true salvation is, is more often realized over time through a process than in a moment. You kind of recognize that over time. That those making steps to Christ and young believers need to be protected from error. It's part of our job as a church, as the, some, some of you who are very mature. That assurance of salvation is gained not by a decision you make, but by the direction of your life. And that every church has genuinely saved wheat and also fake Christian tares who become receptive to heresy and error. The true Christian and the almost Christians in process were being disturbed. And some of the tares were actually embracing the false gospel. And Paul describes this verse, verse 7, saying, Only there are some who are disturbing you. And disturb means literally to agitate. It's like an earthquake of error that's going on. All of a sudden they're like, wait, wait, we better be start doing these things. And we need to keep these laws. And we need to get circumcised. And they're, all of a sudden they're buying in. And they're agitated. They're disturbed. And by adding the Mosaic ceremonial law to faith in Christ, 
Paul's teaching that those who do so, verse 7, pervert. That word distort, you see it there, circle, distort the gospel, and that word distort means reverse. Remember what I said? God accepts you, and then you follow him. Well, they reverse it. They go, well, I'm going to somehow be acceptable to him and do some nice things for him, and then he'll accept me. They're doing that. They're distorting, which means reversing. That's what it means. They're reversing it. And they're making the true gospel invalid. Any revision of the gospel reverses it. And that's why verse 6 said, the false teachers are producing a different gospel, which Paul qualifies in verse 7 is no gospel at all. It's no gospel. Charles Swindoll said this, to change the gospel the tiniest bit is to lose it so completely that the new teaching has no right to be called a what? Gospel, end quote. Uh, those who add to the gospel make the good news into bad news. The social justice movement takes good news and turns it into bad news. 16th century German reformer Martin the Monk Luther summed it up well when he said, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no other alternative to Christian righteousness, but works righteousness is the alternative. If you don't build your confidence on the work of Christ and his righteousness given to you, I'm adding, you must build your confidence on your what? Your own works. You better be good enough or you're not going to be accepted by God. The genuine Christians in these churches, those who endure to the end, will be saved, but those searching, those in process, those who are young, those who are unknown in their faith, I call them the almost Christian, as well as students, are in danger when error is taught, studied, or considered, and that's why Paul is so zealous. So zealous. They're vulnerable. Think of a, a new potential believer as their spiritual life is like a fragile seed, freshly planted in the soil. It takes time for their faith to take root, right? And it definitely takes time for it to grow strong, and it takes time for it to bear fruit. And uh, more mature believers, we need to protect them and guide them during that fragile time, and we need to do so all we can to point them to the true gospel, to trust in what God has done. Now, how does Paul respond to this? I love this, okay? How does Paul respond to the truth-twisting Judaizers? How does he respond to them? Does he schedule a debate? Right? Sounds good. Let the Galatians weigh the matters of both sides in a free and open discussion. That sounds really good. That's, that's our way. That's our culture, right? He publishes a journal essay to persuade his opponents to be well-reasoned arguments that he's going to lay out for them? Or did Paul just ignore the Judaizers' madness and let it all blow like a harmless fad? No, Paul. Paul is totally insensitive to our culture today, and he literally damns them to hell. Right here in the text. Number three in your outline, be warned about damnation with a false gospel. Be warned. <clears throat> be warned. Not be warned and be filled. Be warned. <clears throat> Paul's not pulling any punches here. If we believe what Paul teaches about the true gospel, then we will find his attitude justifiable. 
If the Galatians are really turning their backs on God and taking hold of a gospel that isn't a gospel at all, then their situation is dangerous eternally forever, and therefore Paul's angst that he expresses is the same that any loving parent would have if your child begins to walk away from the faith or walk away from you. It's the same angst. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. Take a look at it. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be, what? Accursed. Verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be, say it, accursed. Paul was sent to proclaim a specific divine message that was given to him by God himself. Christ gave him this message. That means the divine apostolic message and teaching of the Apostle Paul is the standard for judging what is orthodox and which is heretical because he's just telling you what Christ told him to tell you. And so in verse 9 in the NIV, he basically says, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Wow. Even the apostle himself cannot alter, revise, or add the message of Christ. What Paul teaches is not the result of his study. It's not the result of his research or reflection or his wisdom. It came directly from God. And in verse 8, look at what Paul says. Look at what he says. Circle the word we there. It includes himself as a human authority. What he's saying is that he must be rejected if he ever says, I've changed my mind about what the gospel is. Any preacher at this church, by the way, that will be their last sermon, any, including myself, that alters the gospel, you reject it as damnable heresy. Reject it. That's what he's saying. He's not free to alter it through human thinking, experience, his wisdom. The gospel is God-given. It is God-revealed, meaning it is both unchanging and unchangeable. The apostle themselves are not the origin of the gospel. It is God's good news revealed to the apostles. The authority is God and his word, meaning that the gospel cannot change any more than God can change. Are you getting it? So Paul includes the heavenly angels. See that? Verse 8. And his own circle of apostles. Those who are sent out by Christ, those who are maybe sent by churches, all forms of apostles here, in order to highlight the fact that nobody is off the hook. And I put a quote there for you. The purity of this message takes precedence over the prestige of the person. You know what that means? That's not just something you say three times real fast to see if you can speak the letter P. If R.C. Sproul was here now alive and he told you a wrong gospel, you should reject him. If John MacArthur were here today and he told you a wrong gospel, you need to reject him. This message is the defining moment of a Christian's life. If you get this wrong, you are not right with God. That's how important this is. If I ever do it, anybody ever does it. It must be rejected. It must be. Paul includes, again, angels, his own circle of apostles, all these people. And he says it twice. He is to be accursed. The phrasing in the Greek there makes this curse universal. If anyone were to preach a gospel different from what Paul and Barnabas preached, he deserves to be damned. Now, you rarely hear preachers today come down so hard on heresy like Paul does here. Paul calls down God's eternal judgment on those specific false teachers. 
And in our hypersensitive, weird, politically correct culture, Paul's words sound harsh here, don't they? Let him be accursed. Wow. Notice, however, that again, he includes himself. Verse 8, one more time. But even if we are an angel from heaven, and the Greek word accursed there means anathema, it, it it's, means devoting someone to destruction in eternal hell, be damned to hell, is what he's saying. He repeats the curse in verse 9, demonstrating this. Listen, why does he say it twice? You've got to ask yourself that question. Why does he say this twice? Answer, he wants you to know he's deliberate. He wants you to know that he's controlled in his rebuke. He wants you to know that his curse is not a slip of the tongue or a brief fit of rage or a regrettable exaggeration of an emotional preacher. Get it, changing the gospel damns you. Now this crushes me. Because I know a lot of men who honor the gospel, and I know more men who honor the gospel than don't, but I know some men who used to honor the gospel and now don't. And they are damned. They're damned. You cannot alter this message. It is the foundation of your faith in Christ. Are you getting this? This is what he's saying. And Paul says in verse 9, as we have said before, so I say again, he's reminding the Galatian churches that Paul is calling his readers to remember what you know. I was there, I told you. And when I was with you, I told you. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the way we received, this is Paul transitioning from the hypothetical sense of verse 8 to the reality of the real life situation that is basically being faced by the Galatians. The Judaizers are teaching a dead gospel, a false gospel, a gospel that has destroyed the grace of God. It is no longer the gospel. And it... They, and all of them, no matter how godly they seem, listen to me, no matter how devoted, no matter how righteous they seem, no matter how compelling, no matter how beloved they are to you, no matter how spiritual, listen, maybe they were teaching you for 20 years the truth, and now they've abandoned it, that's, you've got to reject it. Your affections don't matter. What matters is this message. Are you with me? Are you getting it, how serious this is? That's what he's saying. And even though he essentially damns these false teachers, this language doesn't fall into the category of vulgar cursing. You know, he's not the, the cussing apostle. <laughs> he's not the cussing pastor. He's not fiercely shaking his fit at his opponents and shouting, damn you. Rather, he's shaking his head and pointedly expressing a clear theological fact Altering the gospel is a damnable doctrine. Paul's souls and the souls of the people that he loves are at stake. And the church's testimony in the region of Galatia is at stake. In fact, in the early stages, and this is very early in church history, very early in the early church, in the preaching of the gospel, the very future of Christianity is at stake. This has to be made right. And with so much at risk, Paul could not afford sweet talk or beating around the bush. You know, and honestly, I'm just telling you, I've watched them, men around the world, they have altered the doctrine of the church, and they've altered this doctrine, and they've altered that doctrine, and now they're altering salvation. They got real familiar and comfortable with altering doctrine, altering the church, altering all kinds of things, and now they're altering the gospel. So Paul hypothetically uses exaggerated examples to make his point. He uses himself, holy angels, 
to make sure that the Galatians are getting this, but they must not receive a preacher or teacher unless, in, in, unless he honors the, the true gospel. And regardless of how impeccable his credentials are or how much beloved he is or how long he's been faithful, it doesn't matter. If his doctrine of salvation differs from the slightest degree from God's truth revealed through Christ and the apostles and now basically altering God's word from grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone, he must be rejected. Are you getting it? You ever done telescope? Everybody look through a telescope? Yeah? You done it? And you, you had that little portable one, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? And you get, you get uh, Jupiter lined up and, and Saturn lined up. I love Saturn because you see the rings. Anybody with me on this? Okay, so you do that, and then you're kind of looking in, and then you walk by and you bump that telescope. Guess what? That little nudge, you no longer have it, correct? That's the gospel. You nudge the gospel, you don't have it anymore. You know, you've been doing maps, Google Maps, right? You, you kind of put the address in, right? You punch the numbers in. Just one number, just one number in your address can send you to the other side of town. Just one number. You change one thing about the gospel, it's going to send you to a different eternity. That's what we're talking about here. That's what it's at stake here. We're going to hear more and more about how we're being assaulted and what you need to watch out for. This is weeks and months to come here, so stay with me, but understand, let's take this home. Salvation is in Christ alone. It is through faith alone, and it is all by God's sovereign grace alone. Amen? Let's take it home. Here we go. Seek to embrace the biblical gospel. Some of you think you're saved by a strong love for God, along with a life committed to Him, and therefore you feel salvation comes by you generating a high degree of spiritual sorrow over sin and a love for others and a love for God and, and to get into God's presence. You, you think somehow you need to maintain this, and if you're really going to stay saved, the reality of that is if that's what you really think, the teaching, you're teaching the idea that you are saved because of the level of your faith and your commitment, and, and that the gospel says you're saved through your faith by God's gift of grace in Christ alone. The wrong approach makes your performance your savior. The right approach makes Christ's performance the savior. You get it? Your faith is to be in Christ, the God-man who took God's wrath for your sin upon himself, rose from the dead, and when you put your faith in Christ alone, he can justify you, pour his righteousness over you, and make you in a right standing. But it's only in Christ, not your faith, not your commitment, nothing else. It's only in Christ and what he's accomplished. Are you getting it? It's what he did. What he did. Number two, scrap the false gospels of our day. Paul's instruction today is designed to expose all the other Gospels as false. I'm concerned for many people who live by material gain, family values, political issues, social justice, morality, traditions, even earning your salvation through obedience. Friends, when you come to Christ, it is by grace through dependent faith in Him. Now, when Christ is truly your Savior, when He has saved you by grace, when he has changed your nature through faith, when you are indwelt with his Holy Spirit, in other words, when you are justified, you are also regenerated, which means you are transformed. And when you are transformed, then everything changes. Now you want to follow him, even when you don't. You want to please him out of love. But are you trying 
from that new heart trying to earn your salvation, yes or no? Oh, wait, nobody answered. Are you trying to earn your salvation? No. It's okay, kids, that's what, how they grow. <laughs> when you come to Christ, it's completely by grace. But we just learned in the book of James, right, that faith without works is dead. Why? Because when you're in Christ, you're regenerated, which gives you a new heart that wants to follow him. But it, you're not trying to earn your salvation at this point. You're just wanting to please the Lord who did everything for you. Listen, Christians, we're going to be working on this, all of us together. Stop trying to earn your salvation and start every day with the awareness that if you're in Christ, every sin, past, present, and future, has been covered and washed, and you are made whole and new and ready for heaven. And there's nothing, are you ready, you can do about it. And you, can, you can work for it, he's going, I already did the work. What are you doing that for? I died for you. I suffered for you. You don't need to earn that. You do this because you desire him and you love him and you worship him. Are you getting it? It's big difference. It makes all the difference in the world. Examine your heart today. Make certain you have a relationship with him and not a religion. And number three, Share the true gospel with everybody. Can I, can I make this really clear to you? I want to say just one thing. We're, we're here. We're left on planet Earth to share the gospel. He left us here to proclaim the good news. What I just told you, that Christ accomplished our salvation. Are you with me on this? He left us here to do this. You say, well, yeah, I've got to tell all those lost people out there. Listen, you, you tell everybody. You start talking to your Christian friends at work. You start talking about Christians here. Everyone needs to hear the gospel all the time. Why is it that when we have testimonies up front here, you light up and you just go, I love that. Why? Because we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear what the gospel does and how it transforms people. We need to share that with one another all the time and making sure we're not trying to earn our salvation, but received it and now wanting to please him, right? That's what he's called us to. Galatians is going to keep unpacking this more and more and more. I hope you're ready. It's going to be awesome. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for this time. We pray that you would be pleased with how we respond. We love you and thank you for just the power of your word. We pray now that uh, we would be able to serve you and worship you and respond rightly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.